Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Let's begin this morning in the Word. Matthew chapter 2. Thanks to Jack, uh, to Sheriff Hightower, to all of the first responders, to all of you who've worked hard this week uh, to uh, uh, begin the work of uh, restoring what's been lost in the tornado. There's still a lot of work to be done. Um, As Jack said, we'll be hosting an out-of-state team of about 20 workers. These are skilled, uh, really uh, uh, excellent teams, probably about 20 folks. I think the primary needs will be feeding them each night. So if you or your family or small group would would take a night to do that, just to communicate with the deacons at deacons at woodburnbaptist.org, just like Jack said, and, uh, and you can plug in. We also have a designated fund, the tornado fund here at Woodburn. If you or anyone online, if you just would like to contribute to that cleanup and rebuilding effort, uh, we're designating money for that. And uh, you can rest assured that anything designated tornado fund will will go to the community for, uh, for cleanup. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, if you wanted to find the Christmas story in the Bible, where do you go? Yes, it's kind of a trick. I made to turn to Matthew chapter 2, but the, the Christmas story you know is mostly where? Luke. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, you'll actually find something of the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 2, but they're different. Now, Luke is, I, I say it's the one most of you know, because that's what Linus does on the Charlie Brown Christmas, which is where most people get, uh, get, get their Christmas story. Uh, that's the story of Mary and Joseph, uh, the innkeeper, the angels, the shepherds, the child in the manger, all of that. You find that in Luke chapter 2. It's a very Jewish story, as Luke tells it, primarily because it's a very local story. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, it's only local folks who visit the manger, primarily the shepherds, and the scripture specifies that they were in their fields nearby. So these are local boys, and they come in that night, they find the child in the manger, just like the angels had said, they worship him, and then they go back to their fields. Everybody goes back home, everybody's in bed early. Mary Joseph, they lay down with the baby early. It's a short night because it's mostly local, it's Jewish. But now Matthew knows you know that story. He knows you know that story. When Matthew writes his gospel, he knows you have Luke's gospel. He knows that you know that story. So Matthew doesn't tell you that part of the story. Matthew tells you something Luke doesn't tell you. And this is a story of, of what Matthew calls the Magi. We call them wise men. We call them the kings, the three kings from Orient are. It's that story. Matthew gives us that. In his gospel, Matthew chapter 2. Now the amazing thing, like I said, in Luke, it's a Jewish story. But the story that Matthew tells in his gospel is going to, it would be somewhat scandalous, surprising, maybe even offensive to a a Jewish audience for the simple reason that the Magi are Gentiles and the Magi are Magi. And, uh, and that makes it somewhat surprising that they would be at the crib of Jesus. So let's read the story. Uh, I want you to see what Matthew is doing here. So uh, well, we're going to do two passages, one from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and one from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So go to Matthew chapter 2, put your finger there, and then turn to Matthew chapter 28, the very last verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew has bracketed the way he tells the story of Jesus with these two passages So let's put them together today. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to start with verse 1. Y'all there? If you're there, say there. Okay, that's good. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Verse 9. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now chapter 28, verse 18. Turn the pages. Chapter 28, verse 18. The end of the gospel. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love that. Turn back to Matthew chapter 2. Let's talk about... The wise men. I would say that you probably don't know all you think you know about the ones we call the wise men. And it's not your fault. You're probably a little bit confused. But the reason you're confused is that, you know, we have confused you. The way the story is frequently told, the way we actually act out the Christmas pageant, it it probably is designed to confuse you. I don't know how you could come out any other way. I mean, for one thing, we say there were three wise men, and the Gospel of Matthew, which we just read, it doesn't say how many there are. So where do you think we got three? Yeah, they give three gifts, three types of gifts. Uh, We don't know that there were exactly three gifts, but they give him gold, they give him frankincense, and they give him myrrh. So there are three types of gifts that are given. So we, uh, we come up with three. I think the poet Longfellow eventually named the, the three, uh, Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. So like in tradition, we've named them and, and, and we've counted them to three. We call them wise men, although that's not what Matthew calls them at all. He calls them magi. That's not a familiar word to us, and so we avoid it. We call them something else. But to call them something else is going to be confusing because they are what they are. They are magi. That's a word. It's a word that people in the ancient world, it's a word that people in Matthew's day, it's a word that people in Jesus' day would know. And it really doesn't really suggest wise men, and it totally doesn't suggest that they were kings. Nothing anywhere says that they're kings except the Christmas carol that we all know and love and we sing it. But they weren't kings. They certainly weren't kings. Even though in the manger scene you got at your house, there they are standing there with crowns on their heads, robes. They got camels. I mean, the kings in the manger scene are the showpiece. I mean, these are, these are the eye-catching part of the manger scene, right? Shepherds are plain, but your three kings are amazing. Problem is, we're not three kings. That's not what we're talking about. They're magi. Matthew calls them magi. So what are they? Well, first off, they're Gentiles. 
I mean, that right there is enough to make the Jewish audience want to lose their minds. They're Gentiles. What are Gentiles doing beside the crib of the king of the Jews? I mean, who invited them? They're Gentiles. So that in itself is surprising, and that's the shocking part of the Christmas story, that right there. They have come from eastern lands, Matthew says. They're Gentiles. So the Gentiles are found right there beside the crib of the newborn king of the Jews. Who invited them, right? They're Magi Gentiles. Magi is a word from which we get words that you do know. You know the word magic. You know the word magicians. I'm not saying that they're like, you know, David Copperfield or David Blaine. They're not magicians like that, but that's getting closer. They were more like that than they were like a king. These are pagan uh, occultists. That that would be a, a technical word. They're occultists, which means they're into the occult. To call them astrologers is kind of a stretch. They're not astro- not like Carl Sagan. They're not physicists, y'all. They don't look at telescopes, you know, to study the heavens. They're astrologists, which means they're interested in the zodiac. They're occultists. They're interested in knowledge, secret knowledge that you might know by looking at the signs of the zodiac, perhaps, or otherwise interpreting dreams. We don't run into a lot of Magi in the New Testament outside of the Gospel of Matthew, but we sure run into them in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's especially in the book of Daniel, where there are Magi everywhere. Daniel himself, as you know, was a prisoner of war, a young man taken captive into the land of Babylon. And there, Daniel finds himself in the court of the wicked pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, And Nebuchadnezzar has a court full of magi. These are wise men. I think they're frequently called advisors or counselors. They were absolutely uh, Babylonian sorcerers. They believed that they could interpret dreams. Honestly, they believed that you could cut open the body of a dead animal and look at its entrails, look at its guts, and they felt like they could you know, know the future by just studying the innards of a dead animal. That's what magis were. That's the kind of knowledge that they prized. And this is what everybody would know in Matthew's day when Matthew says the magi visited Jesus. What are they doing here? I know, I know, we call them wise men and it makes it sound like they belong. We can call them three kings and sing a song and it makes it seem normal that they're there. But this is not normal. What we're getting from the Gospel of Matthew is that sometime after Jesus was born, he was visited by a group of pagan warlocks. Let us sink in. Pagan warlocks made their way to the crib of Jesus. And I'm telling you, ain't nothing normal about that. Matthew, however, includes this story because he wants you to know. Now, I know people read it and they think, what are they doing there? Who invited the pagan warlocks to the crib of Jesus? And if that's your question, I've got your answer. The Lord invited them. They're there because God wanted them there. They are there because they are the Gentiles. They are the representatives of the nations. They're there, and Matthew wants you to know that they were there specifically because they're not Jewish. 
so that you will understand that this king born is not just the king of the Jews. This king born is the savior of the world, all of the nations. So Matthew wants you to see that. Matthew wants you to know that. So when you say, what are the three Gentile warlocks doing here? Who invited them? The answer is God invited them. He wants them there. Now, on top of that, if you're into the Bible, and obviously I am, um, turn to Numbers chapter 24. This is a story that you probably know if you've been in church Because we love to tell this story from the book of Numbers in Sunday school. It's a story of a man named Balaam. Now, what do you know about Balaam? You know one thing about Balaam, and what's that? He had a talking donkey. He had a talking donkey, as we all do, right? And it's just amazing. Balaam is the one that has the donkey that talks. I love this story. I love this story. Now, if it was never made clear to you, let me make it clear to you now. Balaam was pagan. Although he appears in the scripture as a prophet, understand, he was not a prophet of the Lord. He was a pagan. Balaam is actually called a magi. So understand, that's what he is. He's a pagan occultist. What he does is cut dead animals open and look at their guts, look at the signs of the zodiac. He wants to know the secrets of the universe through occult and and dark arts, right? He's that guy. That's who Balaam is. And, And he doesn't get saved in the story. It's just that every time Balaam opens his mouth, a blessing falls out. He's been hired by the enemy king to curse the people of God, but God kind of takes over his mouth so that every time he opens his mouth to curse them, he ends up blessing them. Y'all know the story? So that's Balaam the Magi. Now, as it turns out, in one of these moments when Balaam's tongue is taken over by the Holy Spirit, Balaam ends up offering us an actual prophecy. And you find it in chapter 24, verse 17. And I think this is awesome. Again, this is probably at least 1,200 years, over 1,000 years before Bethlehem. And Balaam, the, the Gentile, you know, warlock, this is what he says when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of his tongue. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam says, I see him, but not here and not now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord. He's talking about the Most High. He's talking about the Almighty. He has a vision from the Almighty. He sees him, but not here, not now. He perceives him, but far in the distant future. And then what's to say after that? A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. You say, well, what's he doing with an actual prophecy? I mean, you know, this is a guy whose donkey talks. This is the Magi. This is the warlock. And, and this is the one paid to curse the people of God. But every time he opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of his tongue and a blessing comes out. And then one of those blessings, he has this amazing prophecy that one of these days a star will rise and the king will be born. And I think that's just awesome. That's over a thousand years before it happens. So this Old Testament Magi, understand, he's the one that has this prophecy that leads the New Testament Magi to the very, very 
uh, crib of the one born king of the Jews. I just find that amazing. I love it because it demonstrates that, as I've said, God wanted them there. And it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't just something, you know, God did to add to our Christmas pageant. God wants them there because he wants the nations to know. He wants the Gentiles to understand that this one born king of the Jews is actually king of all nations. I I, I love that. Now, pay attention here. God wants them there and God wants them there so badly that he gives them the sign that they would see, the sign in the heavens. And then it's a long journey. They have to travel patiently and the Lord leads them patiently. They come first to Jerusalem. They run into King Herod. Then the star leads them on to Bethlehem. And you notice when they arrive in verse 11, they don't find Jesus and Mary and Joseph in the stable in the manger. Instead, where are they? Yeah. Verse 11, they're in a house, which means this is later. I know it kind of, it kind of ruins your Christmas program to have Mary and Joseph leave the stable, rent an apartment, you know, and set up a house in Bethlehem. But that's exactly what they did. They left the stable. They rented an apartment. They lived in Bethlehem for a while. It's possible that when the Magi come, young Jesus could be as much as two years old. So again, this isn't necessarily Christmas night. But that's not what Matthew's trying to do. He's not trying to tell you the Christmas story. He's trying to tell you that when Jesus came, he came as the savior of the whole world. You with me? So we got pagan warlocks standing there beside the crib of the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. What are they doing there? What do they do when they get there? Well, they do what you would expect them to do. These are foreign dignitaries. They're not kings, but they do come from the king's court, most likely. So they're foreign dignitaries. In their minds, they're visiting a king. And there are protocols for that. There are certain things you do when you're in the presence of the Queen of England. You understand? There are ways that you behave. There are royal protocols. And the Magi are going to follow those protocols. And when a dignitary from one country visits a dignitary of another country, you always exchange gifts. That's just what you do. You would exchange gifts. So the Magi, they bring with them gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I've heard entire stories. There are entire books written about what it means, the symbolism of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Matthew's not interested in that. Do you see that? He's just interested in letting you know that they bring gifts, gifts of value, gifts that probably have significance in the country from which they come. They bring gifts because that's what you do. You exchange gifts. Now, y'all know how gift exchanges work, right? You give me something, I give you something. That's how exchanges work. And if you're ever in a situation where somebody gives you something, but you didn't get them something, that's awkward. Like today, it probably happened in this church. Somebody got a present and somebody thought, oh my goodness, I didn't get her anything. And then you say, I left your present at home. I thought we'd exchange next week. You know what I mean? Like, I know we're not, we're not supposed to lie, but we're not supposed to not give presents either, right? So you're stuck. And so you say, oh, your present's in the car. I'll bring that to you next week. Because you know how a gift exchange works. 
She gives you a gift. You give her a gift. It's an exchange. So the Magi bring gifts to exchange with the king of the Jews. But what do you notice about the story? Y'all know how exchanges work, right? So they give Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and he gives them a poopy diaper. He's a baby. It seems like they bow low, they give their gifts, and then they go home empty-handed. Now, that's the way Matthew tells the story. And I think that tension is, in, is, is purposeful. I think you're supposed to say, wait, you know, hey, he gave them something. You know, he didn't, you know, there's supposed to be an exchange of gifts. But it looks like the magi give the gifts and get nothing in return. How do you answer that? Well, Matthew, I believe intentionally wants you to understand that Jesus himself is the gift. You know this, right? I mean, they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are very valuable in that context, in that historical context. But what Jesus gives them is so much more. I mean, salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. It's the gospel. And that's why Matthew begins his gospel with the nations coming to Jesus and then ends his gospel with the message of Jesus going out to the nations. Do you understand what I just said? Begins with the nations coming to Jesus and then ends the gospel with the message of Jesus going to the nations. What you have to understand is that the gospel itself is Jesus' gift to the nations. The gospel is Jesus. Man, my screen is going nuts right now. The gospel is Jesus' gift to the nations. I mean, you have to understand that. It is not that the wise men don't get anything. It's what they get back is so much more valuable. It's literally an eternal gift. And it's the gospel. It's the gospel, which is Jesus' gift to the nations. And the great part about that is we get to deliver it. It's not that the Magi go home empty-handed. It's that the gift that Jesus brings, we're going to carry it to them. We take it to the nations. This is what the Great Commission is about. Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always even to the end of the age. The gospel is a gift and we get to deliver it. That's what I thought y'all would say. It's a gift and we get to deliver it. You remember that famous episode of Oprah when everybody in the audience got a car? Everybody was excited, but did you notice who was probably most excited of all? Oprah. Why is that? Because there's something amazing about being able to say, everybody look under your seat. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. And everybody in the room got a car. They looked under their seat. What was under the seat? Y'all keys? A, a coupon? I, I, I don't know. Just look under your seats. And everybody gets a car. And Oprah herself is full of joy because I'm telling you, it's amazing to get to give a, a gift that awesome. To give everybody in the room a brand new car. And I'm telling you, what we have to give to the world is so much more valuable than a car. 
The gift that we are called to deliver is life-changing. It is world-changing. It lasts for eternity. The gospel is Jesus' gift to the nations, and we get to deliver it. It's a gospel. So it's amazing. What this reveals is God's plan, right? And he is so patient in unfolding it. I mean, we can go back again to prophets like, you know, the pagan warlock Balaam or Isaiah or Nahum or any of those Old Testament prophets who could see it from afar. They could see it in the distance. They could see it coming, but they could hardly have dreamed the dream of the gospel that you and I know on this side of Bethlehem, on this side of the cross. It's a plan that God unfolds through centuries, through thousands of years, from the very beginning. It's not that, you know, he thought of this along the way. The gospel is sown into the fabric of creation itself. It was God's plan from the beginning, and God is very patient in rolling it out. And the gospel still seems like a rather slow way to change the world, if you ask me. I mean, go change the world. You know, let's just step out, burn this thing down. You know, clap your hands and let's start over. I mean, God has all the power in the world to do it that way. But the process of salvation, the process of transforming the world, the process that God has chosen is a very, very slow process. Because what you need to know is that Jesus is saving the world and he's doing it one person at a time. time. That's going to take a while. It's how the gospel works. The gospel works when somebody hears. They have to hear the story of Jesus. They have to hear the message of salvation. They have to hear about the grace and mercy of God in Jesus. They have to hear it. And then when they hear it, they're going to make a choice. It's going to be yes or no. They're going to make a choice. And make no mistake, everybody who hears makes a choice. It's either yes or no. There's no in-between. It's it's yes or no, and, and, and once you say yes to Jesus, once you say yes to the gospel, then Jesus goes to work in you, and then the gospel continues to move. What you have to understand is that the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. The gospel comes to you on its way to somebody else. So once Jesus begins to do his work in your life, then you get taken up into this now, and you now have a great commission that that takes claim of your life. Your life is no longer your own, and your purpose is not just to live the American dream, to get married, to have a family, to have a house, to celebrate Christmas, and have all the kids home for Christmas. That's not the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life, Jesus says very, very plainly, is to go and make disciples of all the nations. Now recognize that he tells us to make disciples, not church members, not just converts. See, our aim is not just to see people get saved so they can come to church with us. And that's a part of it. I'm not saying we don't want to see people active in the body of Christ. I'm just saying that you have to understand that when the gospel takes over a person's life, The gospel takes over a person's life. It's not just your church life, it's your life life. It's not just your Sunday morning, it's every waking moment, every breath you take, every single moment of your life now belongs to Christ, and this is your purpose. You're to make disciples. 
disciples, not church members, not converts, but people who are now on that same way, walking their life every day to become more like Jesus and to carry the message of Jesus to the world. That's our life now. All of us. The Great Commission. It's all of us. So the thing that happens is Jesus is going to save the world one person at a time, but the salvation, the change that he's bringing to the world, it's got to happen in you first. Again, it's not just about your coming to church. It's a total transformation. You know how broken the world is. You know how lost the world is. We've been talking about it now for two years. The world is so broken. People are so alienated. People are so mean. People are so hateful. The world needs love. The world needs kindness. And I agree with you. Jesus knows the world needs kindness and love. So you know how this works, right? The kindness and love that he's bringing to the world, he wants to bring in you first. That kindness starts in your heart and then it goes outward to the world from there. It starts with you. This is the plan. This is how the gospel spreads, one person at a time, and it should be working now in you, on its way to somebody else. You see? So the Great Commission now defines our life. This is what Matthew wants you to know, that God wants to invite the nations to come to Jesus. God wants the whole world to know, and now that's our responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. So you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. I suggest starting, you know, where your feet are. Start where you are. You start right there. You need to be spreading the gospel where you are. Start at home. You know, the amazing thing about preaching this message on the Sunday before Christmas is some of y'all are about to see your whole family and you know those people need Jesus. You know your family. You know they need Jesus. So guess what? Your week has a purpose. And it's not just to, you know, you know, make sure the turkey is cooked just right or make sure all the presents are wrapped or make sure all the lights are strung on the house. I mean, uh, okay, that stuff is nice. But if you got your family coming to your house, if you're going to be with lost people this week and everybody is supposedly celebrating the birth of Jesus, this is an amazing opportunity for you to tell people. So why would you not? Now you start somewhere at work, at school. You've got to start somewhere. There aren't any options here. It just says go. It's a commandment. So Pastor Jim, I don't understand why necessarily you and I have to go. If everybody goes, I mean, then nobody will be here to spread the gospel right here. I think some of us ought to stay. So that's how most of us are, right? I mean, somebody's got to stay. I'll, I'll volunteer to stay while y'all go. You know, I mean, that's how most of us think. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't know that I'm called to go. How do you know you're not? I agree. A lot of us need to stay back and send others. And a lot of us need to make sure that, that the gospel gets spread right here. But I'll tell you one thing. I can't imagine that God intends for every single one of us to sit right here. Jesus says go. 
There's not some exception or loophole or option where you get to, you know, fulfill the Great Commission in some other way where you don't ever actually have to tell anybody about Jesus. That's not an option for an actual believer of Jesus. He says, go. You and I can't be faithful if we don't go tell people. I was on a, I guess last time I was on an airplane, uh, you know how air, flying on an airplane used to be fun and now it's not, you know, they used to feed you and now you don't know if you're going to get a bag of five nuts, you don't know if you get anything anymore. So I was on a plane and I wasn't expecting food, I really wasn't, I just learned not to expect it. But the flight attendant came down the aisle and it was at the row in front of me, talked to the lady in front of me and said, would you like dinner? Dinner? You know, what am I, you know, what, what plane am I on? This is awesome. I'm all excited. Dinner. Flight says, would like dinner? And the lady on the row in front of me says, well, what are my options? You know, she's asking this like, like she's at a restaurant and about to get the daily specials. You know, what are my options? And the flight attendant looked at her and said, yes or no. <laughs> you know, options. Do you want dinner? Yes. No. And the Great Commission works like that. You understand, right? There's not some, you know, other plan that you're going to get on where you just live your life for yourself and not for the world, not for Jesus. No, it's, it's going to be a yes or no thing. And if you answer no to the Great Commission and understand you cannot say that you are faithful to Jesus. You cannot say you're living the ordinary Christian life. If you live your life and you never, ever say the name of Jesus to anybody at work, anybody at school, you don't even talk about Jesus with your own kids, there's something profoundly wrong with what you call Christian faith. Start somewhere. Start at home. Then just go. Go. I don't know if you'll know if you're called to go unless you go. Go somewhere. Go somewhere. Pastor Jim, there's a lot of needs right around here. Yes, there are. There are more needs than you know. Let me tell you something. One of the best ways to get eyes to see the place where you live is to go somewhere else and look around. Because you go somewhere else, you'll see the needs there, and you'll pour your heart out, and you'll think, my goodness, I could do this at home. And yes, you could, and you should, but you don't. Sometimes going is the best way to come back home and get yourself on mission. Jesus says go. So you need to go. You see, I know you people, and I know y'all, and, and it's not that you don't love Jesus or don't love the world. You've just got other reasons, and, and I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not, I'm not trying to be crude. I can tell you one thing. There's probably a third of this congregation, and they don't say this out loud, but the reason they don't want to go on a mission trip is because they say their bowels won't move if they're not at home, right? I'm not asking for a show of hands. But I can look some of you in the face and know you, you, you need some Malox right now. I can look you in the face and, 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 and tell. I'm, I'm not making that up. That's what we say. Well, I would like to go on, I would love to go on a mission trip, but I'd be so bound up for a week. I, my bowels won't move. I'm not at home. I mean, that's real. That's real. That's what people say. Other, other, other than that, people say, Pastor Tim, I'd like to go, but I can't eat all that foreign food. I don't know what I'd eat. See, those sound like really good reasons for you to live your life not on mission. Because you got this sensitive, you got this spastic colon that won't fly. I'm not being funny because I think that's real. 
And I think you're going to have a really hard time one day when you stand before Jesus and you give an account for your life and you have to explain why you really didn't do any actual mission work, you know, because you didn't really enjoy foreign food. People live and die without Jesus. They step into eternity, either heaven or hell, and you're really more concerned about your next bowel movement. What does that say about your heart? What it says is we mostly are here for ourselves. We're mostly about our comfort. We don't want to be uncomfortable for a day, not a week. We don't want to be uncomfortable. And for that reason, we'll just sit back here and and leave the great commission to other people with strong stomachs. God help us. We have to go. We have to tell. We have to be witnesses because Jesus commands us. No other options. It's it's yes or no. And if you say no to Jesus, I really can't imagine what it is in your heart that makes you think you belong to him. It's really not an option here. This is a commandment. We go. We tell people. We tell people where we are. We tell people everywhere we go, this is our purpose. So Matthew is going to tell you the story of the birth of Jesus, and, and, and he, he tells you the story about the other visitors, you know, the ones that nobody thought would ever show up, the the. The pagan Gentile warlock standing there beside the group of Jesus. And he knows you're going to say, who invited them? What are they doing here? And that's the very question he wants you to ask because you need to understand they're there because Jesus was born for them too. They're there because Jesus was born not just the Savior of the Jewish people, but the Savior of the world. God wanted them there. God invited them. And God still wants the nations to come to Jesus. God still wants them to come closer to him. Jesus himself is the very gift of salvation to the world. And you and I are called to deliver it. The Great Commission is really pretty simple. You and I, we, we tell people wherever we go and we go. There's really no other way to be faithful in the Christian life. It's not any other options there when it comes to the Great Commission. It's either yes or no. You cannot say no. Pray with me.